So let's say you're on a boat and some waves come and rock you. Say some thoughts or somebody says something or something at work. Um, these waves come and rock your boat, splash of water inside. And how quickly can you right your boat? How quickly can you stop your boat from you know, tipping back and forth? And I think of this as kind of an equanimity challenge. But the key, and this was such just an epiphany to me when I realized that we think of ourselves as that little person in the boat, kind of helpless, you know, getting half drowned like a rat and, you know, constantly bailing themselves out. But actually, we're not the person, we're not the boat, we are the ocean. We are the ones who are rocking our own boat with our thoughts. Hi, folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a place where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Christina Shenvey. Christina received her bachelor's degree from Princeton, her PhD from UC Berkeley, her MD from Yale, and then did her residency training and specialty geriatric fellowship training at UNC, where she's currently a practicing emergency physician, an educator, and the director of the Office of Academic Excellence. She's also deeply into Stoic philosophy and is the founder and creator of timeforyourlife.org. Now, that's the word for, not the number, and it's an educational platform designed to help busy professionals across all disciplines manage their time to better live according to their really deepest value. Personally, I have definitely enjoyed and absolutely been influenced by Christina's writings on the value of maintaining an internal locus of control that is focusing on what I actually have the power to influence during even the most chaotic emergency shift. And it's really interesting to see the way she relates that not only to our ability to perform under pressure, to actually deliver our skill, but also to increase the depth with which we really enjoy the work that we do. I think this is a great conversation, and it's one that I've come back to in my own mind over and over again since recording it. I think there's a ton to learn here. Before we jump in, some more ways to get involved if you like what you're hearing on this podcast. First, you can join our newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure. It's free. It's awesome. And it has a deep dive into a lot of the different topics we cover on the podcast, as well as bringing together sources from sort of around the universe of applying knowledge under pressure. To get access to that, head over to emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, you can head over to our YouTube channel. That's The Emergency Mind, one word at YouTube. And that has a variety of resources, ranging from formal lectures on individual components of performance under pressure to really informal but deeper conversations and follow-up conversations with guests on the podcasts and honestly just a bunch of other cool, very useful stuff. So again, that's The Emergency Mind, one word at YouTube. Finally, if you have ideas for future guests, things you want to see more of, or comments on what we're talking about, I would love to hear it. And you can reach me directly at dan at emergencymind.com. Okay, all that said, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy. All right, Christina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's awesome to meet you and great to talk to you. I think we've got a ton of like really cool stuff on the menu today. So thank you for coming. Thanks. I'm excited to talk with you. Awesome. Um, so we were sort of like kicking around before actually starting to record this, and, and we realized that we have somewhat similar paths, which is a little bit unusual in the emergency world, and that both of us have uh, not only medical training, but also PhD scientific training. So how in the world did you get from doing PhDs in <laughs> structural biology to being an emergency uh, physician? What was that path like? Well, Dan, it was short, certainly not the shortcut. 
I will tell you that much, but I started out, I loved science and I just, I love learning. That's one of my core uh, components of my personality. And after college, I went to grad school in chemistry, did this PhD, but realized, you know, I want to be able to do something that has more of an immediate impact on people. And the PhD, you got to be, you've got to be in research for the long-term end game. There is no immediate gratification in the research world. And I really wanted to have more of an impact. So then I applied to med school, got into med school, and then went all the way to the other side of the spectrum to the field that has the shortest attention span, which is emergency medicine. And I just really liked that and resonated with it. And then did a fellowship in geriatric emergency medicine. So yes, it's always nice to meet another person who has a lot of PhD training that they never actually use, other than, of course, the quantitative <laughs> skills, the clinic, you know, the reasoning skills, the being able to dissect the literature apart and put it back together in a new form, those sorts of uh, things actually help. Actually, there's a great uh, quote by B.F. Skinner, which is, and I may, this is maybe a paraphrase from memory, but education is what remains when what has been learned is forgotten. Mm. A, a paraphrase, but there's still the education there, even though what I actually learned has mostly been forgotten. That's well said, especially the very beginning. It was certainly not the short path that either of us have taken to be no. here. Um, and when you put yourself back in time, maybe to maybe to medical school or or potentially even before that, like what was it that first got you interested in emergencies? Obviously, the the structure of the thought process is wildly different, like you alluded to a little bit. But but what was it that really resonated with you about 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 crises or thinking under pressure or, or whatever it was? So for a long time, I was actually not interested in it at all. In part because there was a stereotype at the time, at least where I was, that the emergency medicine docs were not the smart ones. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I guess I don't really want to be one of the not smart ones. So I hadn't even really considered it. And then I was there actually in a bar with some friends. They had just graduated the year before me and we were hanging out celebrating and a person next to us on a bar stool had a seizure mm. and, you know, kind of fell to the ground. One of my med school classmates who had just was graduating, he had was going into emergency medicine and he kind of swooped in and knew what to do. And there wasn't that much to do in retrospect. You just kind of keep the person from hurting themselves or banging their head against something and, uh, you know, keep them, keep their airway open. But he just jumped in and knew what to do. And there I was most of the way through med school. And I felt like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to actually do in an emergency. And so then I decided, well, I should at least do an EM AI, a sub internship. So I did that. And of course, what had also been going on was my parents and my husband were all telling me, oh, you should do emergency. You'd be really good at it, which of course made me think, well, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. <laughs> but then as I got into it, I realized I really like it. These people are smart people. They're people who can are um, strappy. They can uh, do what they need to do with minimal resources. They're calm under pressure. All of those things appealed to me and really resonated. So that's why I ended up on that long path to EM. That's great. That's great. That I think if you ask any of us who have ended up in an emergency, we all have some version of that. And then the person next to me fell off the object and I had to <laughs> you know, jump in and do it. And um, yeah, that, that, that's always a fascinating way to get into it. Um, when did you first start getting interested in Stoic philosophy? How did that, how did that appear in your life? So for the last few years, I've been really working on understanding how to make the most of your mind and how to not let your mind undermine you. And one of the reasons I got interested in that is because I 
coach students. Right now, one of my biggest roles that I do is coaching students who are having academic difficulty or really just to help them be more successful. And what I realized is that a lot of that is not just, here's how to study, here's how many U world questions you should do. A lot of it is how do you manage your mind in the face of fear of failure? If you're really worried you're going to fail an exam or say you failed an exam in the past, how do you manage your mind around that? And I found it so important, not just for me to be able to help my students, but also for my own self. When somebody asked me recently, I'm running this course on time management. And at the end of the class, the four weeks, we had a very intense four week time together. And one of the people asked me positions, said, well, what would you do if you could go back 10 years? What would you tell yourself 10 years ago? And I realized, you know, 10 years ago, I knew how to manage my time. I knew how to have a calendar, a prioritized task list. I was very effective in that way. But what I didn't know how to do was manage my own mind. And that was really what was probably my biggest problem. And without being able to control our own thoughts or manage our minds, they, we can get just hijacked by fear of failure or by anxiety or frustration. We can just perseverate on things that happen. And so really, it's only in the last few years that I've understood how to do that and have put it into practice. Of course, always, you know, people who know me, work in progress, people work in progress, <laughs> not the final deal right now, <laughs> but definitely so much better than 10 years ago. Mm. Yeah, so I want to try to weave these two threads together here, right? Because in some sense, you have this idea of, of ancient philosophy and sort of the, the interface of life and death and sort of handling failure. And then you have the, the day-to-day details of being an emergency physician or being a medical student or, or you know, being anything else that has to really apply that knowledge. And, and I want to try to weave those together to figure out that interface. It's something we've, we've talked about a couple of times in the podcast in various ways, something that I think is an incredibly like very rich and fertile ground for, for growth for basically everybody. Um, so let's start a little bit with that, that idea that you said of don't let your mind undermine you. So can we press on that a little bit? Like, like what does that mean? And, and, and maybe either answer that for like your own life or for as you're teaching the students that you're working with. Like, like how is it that our mind undermines us and, and what do we do about that? Yeah, so many ways. I mean, I see this manifest in students, to myself, to faculty members. For example, one way is imposterism. So prevalent. Whenever I talk about imposterism, I have people raise their hands. Who feels like an imposter at some point? And every hand goes up, except for maybe a few who just aren't quite self-aware enough yet. But it's so common. And that's for one way. For example, if we constantly have these thoughts of, I don't deserve to be here. Everyone else is smarter than me. Or I just shouldn't try this because I'll fail. Those are just thoughts in our head. Those are not reality. And yet they cause us to avoid taking on more difficult tasks or avoid applying for more difficult or senior roles. Or maybe we do apply for those tasks or those jobs, but as we do them, we're constantly berated by that eternal inner murmur of negative self-talk. There's a great, um, I don't remember the who, who said this, but be careful how you speak to yourself because you're listening. And when we have that constant negative self-talk, that's what undermines us. And that's what keeps us from either doing difficult things or from trusting ourselves. And as you've talked about many times, I'm sure when you're in this recess bay or in some sort of critical situation, you have to trust yourself. You have to at least have some confidence in your skill. Now, of course, I'm not saying like, go pretend you have a skill you don't and just be confident and visualize that you'll succeed. That's 
ridiculous that that's hubris. But when you do have the skills that you need, having confidence in that is important to succeed. Otherwise, other people won't trust you when you say to do this or do that. The team is looking to you, so you have to be confident enough in yourself. So that's one way. So the idea is that our, our internal monologue, our beliefs about ourselves, whether that's, you know, fear of being in a particular situation or fear of, of success almost, or our own mm-hmm. sense of who we are, subtly changes the way that we, per, that we approach certain small problems. And, and it's a thousand paper cut kind of issue. And that that gets in the way of us really deploying our skills. Am I, am I, yeah, am I it's both right? small problems and big problems. Let me give you an example of a woman who took my workshop last month and she was so plagued by imposterism. She was the youngest person in her department, so had the fewest publications. And so she constantly felt like, well, she shouldn't speak up because she's the most junior person or she doesn't deserve to be there. And so she constantly felt this drive to both prove herself, but also this fear that she would never measure up. So that kind of conflict in our internal monologue is is both, like you said, death from a thousand paper cuts, but also it holds you back from maybe speaking up in a meeting when then your idea could have changed the course of something. Hmm. But it's also really relevant to the small things. I know you focus on, you know, the big scary events, surfing 40 foot waves or martial arts or the recess bay, but you know what causes burnout? If you look at the burnout literature, it's the little things. It's not the big horrible things that happen that cause burnout. Certainly those are devastating and can you know, when you've had a, a witnessed a child die, that's the first thing you think about when you wake up and the last thing you think about when you go to bed for weeks. Yeah. But the reason that people burn out is not those things. It's the little things. It's that five extra clicks in the electronic medical record. It's the, I can't get prior authorization for this patient. It's the, I have to go back and redo this chart. It's all those little things. And managing your mind is really, really helpful there also. Because if we're constantly caught up in the, oh, this is so frustrating, I shouldn't have to do this. And when we have those thoughts of should or shouldn't, those are almost always dead end thoughts. Like, where does that thought go? That thought doesn't go anywhere. It just is like a a way that we think we're driving forward, but we're actually just beating ourselves up. Hmm. It's almost like you're describing, it's almost like you're describing the integral of friction over time right? Like all of the little bits of friction that we Mm. have around us. And as we try to work and try to apply our craft in a system, that little bit of friction adds up and adds up and adds up and sort of grinds the person down a little bit. Yes, exactly. You know, it, it makes me wonder what the opposite of that would sort of look like, right? Because we know that friction over time grinds things down and erodes them, but friction over time also sharpens things and hardens things and produces a better system that's more useful, right? What's the, just, oh, let's jump into, you know, stoicism right away. What's that quote <laughs> from, um, from Seneca? I think that it's some version of like, oh, I'm going to butcher it, but it's some version of like, you don't get a diamond from coal without extreme pressure or something mm, like that. Mm-hmm. But, but the idea also that the same sort of friction, if applied, um, consciously and purposefully can produce very different results. So, so what do we do with that, right? What do we do with that sense of friction in our day-to-day lives? Yeah, that's a great way to view it. And you're absolutely right. How do we go from being coal to diamond and not just coal to smushed mass of coal that's now useful for nothing? <laughs> and how do we, because the, the pressure is there. The pressure is outside of our control most of the time. So the difference is how we think about it and how we manage our minds about it. So one way that I think of is really important to start with is really maintaining agency or ownership 
over what you're in control of. And the Stoics would say, what you're in control of is your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. I am not in control of how many clicks I have to do in the electronic medical record. Now I can take action potentially to reduce that or to fix the problem. So it's not a matter of just suck it up and deal kind of mentality. Absolutely take action, remove those annoying stressors if you can. But a lot of times we can't. A lot of times, especially in the moment at 2 a.m., I can't do anything to get a nursing facility to send an ambulance to come pick up their patient. If they say they're going to come at seven, they're going to come at seven and there's nothing I can do to change that. The only thing I can do is change how I think about it by not continuing to perseverate on this should happen. They should do this. And instead focusing only on the things that I can control. And there's an important virtue in there, uh, which is something we've, we've pressed on before in the podcast in various forms um, about letting go and essentially the virtue of, of not making a decision or the virtue of quitting when you don't have any agency over the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think especially as we're, we're talking about being people who respond to emergencies of one sort or another, our bandwidth, our energy is limited. We are, we are the scarce resource and our ability to apply that knowledge is a scarce resource. And, you know, our patients taking the set of um, the mindset of an emergency physician again, our patients need us not only to make good decisions, they need us to make the right decisions. Like they need us to attempt to make the decisions, which are the, I'm butchering that. Hold on. They need us not <laughs> only to make decisions well, they need us to attempt to make the correct decisions. I don't know if that makes more sense or not, but I think mm -hmm. you get what I'm saying. Uh, and we can't do that if we try to make every decision. We can't do that if we try to spend our energy on every little thing. And so there's this virtue in saying, okay, well, okay, that one, I'm done with that. I'm just going to let that be what it is. Yeah, there's a great um, Marcus Aurelius quote. Ask, what is so unbearable about this situation? Why can't you endure it? You will be embarrassed to answer. And I think about that when I find myself getting frustrated at, mm. I can't get this done, or I can't get the imaging study I need, or the consultant was mean to me. <laughs> Why can I not endure that? And it's embarrassing to answer. If you answer yourself, you're like, no, actually, I can't endure that. I'm just not managing my own mind well. Hmm. All right. So let's press right there. So, so let's say you're in that situation um, and you are, <laughs> man, there's just an infinite number of examples of this coming to mind. But let's <laughs> say that you're in a situation and you, know, you just step out of a trauma bay. You've come from this massive situation and you walk back into your sort of uh, not quite normal life, but your normal flow within a shift. Um, and you get handed a problem that you you really can't, you really can't do anything about. Maybe it's a consultant being incredibly rude to you on the phone, or maybe it's a, um, a systems issue that you're just not going to overcome at three in the morning. And you find yourself getting worked up and you notice it. And we can talk about how you notice that in a second, but you notice it, you notice this internal sort of um, friction happening. And you say to yourself, I'm going to ask myself if I can endure this. And I think I can. Okay. Okay. Then what? What do you do right then? What's your personal version of, of allowing yourself to shift gears like that? One of the things is to really maintain a constant awareness of your thoughts. And this is what the Stoics called meditation. It's very different from the Eastern meditation, which is more about emptying your mind or focusing on breath or the body, which also certainly has its role in its place. But Stoic meditation is more about maintaining a constant intentional awareness of your thoughts. And then to me, the next step is creating a space between yourself and your thoughts. So looking as an observer at your thoughts that I am thinking that this is frustrating. Actually, one of my favorite quotes, 
have it on my wall, so I'm going to turn my microphone. <laughs> I have it on my wall there. It's a Vin Victor Frankl quote. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And I think about that space, almost think about it like a physical space between two objects, stimulus and response. And I think about how can I widen that space in order to allow more of my humanity into it. And sometimes it's very hard. And there's a whole theory or a whole research body behind the idea of willpower and what's called ego depletion, which is the idea that as you endure more and more stresses, it takes a lot of willpower. And by the end of the day, I think of your willpower like a lemonade pitcher, by the end of the day, your pitcher is empty. And it is very hard to find space between stimulus and response. But one of the ways I use to do that is to look at the thoughts and ask, first of all, is this true? This thought that this person was mean to me, is it objectively true? Maybe it's true. Maybe from their standpoint, they weren't. Maybe somebody else might think they were totally polite. So is it actually objectively true? And then thinking about, well, what am I making that thought mean? I'm making that thought mean this person was mean to me because they think I'm a terrible doctor or I am you know, advocating for the patient and this person is bulldozing what I know is the right path of care. So I'm making it mean something much bigger than it probably is. And then the other thing you can ask is, how do I feel with this thought? I feel frustrated, angry, helpless. And we know learned helplessness is like the kiss of death. <laughs> and, and so feeling that helplessness is terrible for your creativity, your productivity, everything. And then asking, how would I think in the same situation, just without that thought, the thought of this person was mean to me, or this person should do something else. And you realize without that thought, I would just go do my job. I would feel so much lighter, so much less mental drama, so much less inner chatter. And I find that when my mind tastes that situation of how would I feel without that thought, my mind is like, I want that. I want that. And that helps just release the negative thought. And you can't fight against your thoughts. You can't force yourself to not think a thought. You know, as soon as I say, don't think about a dancing teddy bear, you just thought about a dancing teddy bear, right? So you, it's totally futile to like try to swing your fists at your thoughts. The only thing you can do is kind of open your mind to say, well, how would I feel without that thought? And your mind is like, whoa, that feels way better. Let's do that. It's a totally fascinating dichotomy to say on the one hand, as the Stoics do, that you are in control of your thoughts. And then also to recognize what that actually means in practice, which is actually, no, you're really not in control of your thoughts. You can't force them to do anything. Mm -hmm. What you can do is, is create opportunities for them to flow in certain directions and to optimize the space for it. Yeah, and the Stoics actually had kind of two words for, or two concepts for thoughts. One was fantasiae, which are the kind of fleeting thoughts that you can't really help yourself thinking. And one is dogmata, which are those are the things that I'm intentionally thinking. I think about the Martin Luther quote. He said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. So we have those fantasiae that are the birds flying over our heads, but we aren't going to let them take root or build a nest in our hair. I love that. Fantasia and dogma. All right. Dogmata. Yep. Dogmata. Um, and logistically, how do you do that? Do you actually ask yourself out loud these four questions in a row? Do you have a little piece of paper with uh, shorthand notes on them? What, what's your strategy for actually deploying that thought in that exact moment? 
I try not to talk to myself out loud, <laughs> but I do ask myself Fair. those thoughts yeah. uh, internally. And I, I ask myself those questions internally. Another thing I do sometimes when I'm teaching um, others about, you know, time management and managing their minds is I will have them draw a circle and whatever they're feeling frustrated about, whatever, whether it's politics, coronavirus, and I'll have them say, okay, this is your circle of control. Write down what is in your circle and write down what is outside their, your circle. And they'll realize that, oh, the things that they've been so worked up about and so frustrated about are actually outside their circle of control. And we paradoxically try to control all those things that are outside our circle and yet give up control of what's inside our circle, which is our own thoughts and our own feelings. And we give up control of those by allowing ourselves to beat ourselves up with our thoughts or constantly be in a negative spiral with our thoughts or take what someone else said about us and make that one of our thoughts that builds a nest in our, in our hair. So uh, focusing, refocusing kind of visually on there's my circle and that's what I'm in control of. I don't know if you can see it or not. I actually have a tattoo of a circle right on my left wrist. Oh, I, I love it. At all times, exactly in some sense for that reason. That's um, perfect. Based out of an experience uh, where I was personally very sick and essentially had mm. sort of no control over the outcome of it and, and realizing, okay, well, what do I have control over? I have control over however it is that I choose to be in this moment. Um, and the great. rest of it's outside of my control. Uh, but it's a constant reminder of that in a place where I can see it in the middle of all these circumstances. So wow. I think I'll say I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the reason I asked about that is, is that I think that there's a, I think that people can listen to this and say, wow, okay, so here are these two people that study Stoic philosophy and throw themselves into these emergency situations all the time. Sure, it's really easy for them to sit there and talk about how do you manage your mind in it. But, but that's actually not true. I mean, in some sense, you know, our minds are not shaped differently than anybody else's minds. And, and I think the question becomes one of logistics of how do you actually start executing on this? And importantly, you don't have to start executing these things we're talking about at the absolute worst moments of your life, mm -hmm. right? You mm -hmm. don't have to be standing in front of a multi multi-car accident, like mass casualty incident where you have a billion traumas coming in. You don't have to start doing this with the biggest fires around, right? You should actually, in fact, start practicing this at the really smallest things. And so there's a, a Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, that I really enjoy, mm -hmm. who talks about the idea of sort of what is the minimum viable product of what you and I just said, right? What is the smallest thing that we can start accomplishing and we can start accomplishing today to start putting this into practice? And the way that she describes it is imagine you're sitting in front of a fire and you have a can of gas in your hand. Just don't pour the gas on the fire. Mm, I love that. That's it. That's all you do. If you don't pour the gas on the fire, essentially you're winning and it will work itself out at some point. And, and I think that's maybe like a baby step version of what you said about your mind tasting the free expanse of not following a, a harmful path. Um, and so I think about that metaphor sometimes when I'm sitting in that moment at work and I'm like, all right, well, mm. look, this is real hard, but can I at least not pour gas on this right now? At least not make it worse. That's great. Yeah. For me, my, my training ground is when I'm in the car because that's when I'm by myself, there's nothing else that I have to do. And so all those thoughts from an accumulated lifetime of whatever it is, experiences that anyone would have decide that that's a great time to come on back in on mass and swarm my mental focus. So I don't know if you've experienced this, but if you ever 
are in a meeting or in a you know party or at a conference and you say something that's just kind of stupid. <laughs> and then the whole rest of the day, your mind is replaying that. And then at some opportune moment, when you're in your car minding your own business, then your mind is like, let me play you a selection of your worst hit ever in the last 20 years. And so all these thoughts come back of like, oh, remember that time? Yeah, they thought you were really stupid. Remember that other time when you said this really dumb thing? And so for me, that's always the time. That's actually the hardest time for me when I really have to manage my mind and use those questions to say, how am I feeling with this thought rattling around my head? And, and then how would I feel without that thought? And it's, it's amazing. It's so, it's so freeing. The other, um, I like your, your gasoline analogy. One of the visual images that I use in my mind is this idea of a little boat. So let's say you're on a boat and some waves come and rock you. Say some thoughts or somebody says something or something at work. Um, these waves come and rock your boat, splash of water inside. And how quickly can you right your boat? How quickly can you stop your boat from you know, tipping back and forth? And I think of this as kind of an equanimity challenge. But the key, and this was such just an epiphany to me when I realized that we think of ourselves as that little person in the boat, kind of helpless, you know, getting half drowned like a rat and, you know, constantly bailing themselves out. But actually, we're not the person. We're not the boat. We are the ocean. We are the ones who are rocking our own boat with our thoughts. And that is so amazing and empowering to realize that, no, we're the ones who are making the waves. Because if somebody else tries to drop a rock in the ocean, what's going to happen? nothing. Nothing happens. The rock sinks. The ocean doesn't all of a sudden like create a tsunami because someone threw a rock at it, right? So when we are rocking our boat, and so that's the, the image I think about when I'm driving or when I'm at work and I feel myself getting frustrated and I say, no, I'm rocking my own boat. These are my thoughts. I'm not the boat. I'm the ocean and I'm rocking my own boat with my thoughts. And that just allows you to have so much more control than if you feel like you're this helpless little thing in a, in a little you know, boat out in the ocean, just getting tossed around by fate. Wow. I love that. I absolutely love that idea. Asking myself, am I rocking my own boat right now? Um, am I making these waves to move myself forward and to surf them? Or am I, am I just smashing myself into things? Yeah, exactly. That's such a powerful question. You know, maybe that's a great time to pivot slightly and talk about uh, this article you wrote recently. Um, called how to, how, excuse me, how to almost never have a bad shift. Uh, I loved this. And if you guys haven't read it, you definitely should. Um, it's really, really an interesting read. And it sort of gets to this, some of the questions we've just been talking about, about how do you set your mind up for um, having a good shift? And then also, if you find yourself in the middle of something where there's a bunch of waves going on, how do you start asking yourself these questions of, of what am I, what am I doing here right now? Um, and there's a part of it that I really loved that I'm hoping we can press on, which was called, we're just talking about even, excuse me, evening out your standard deviation and raising your mean. What, what's that about? Yeah. So I mentioned I'm a lifelong learner and I'm doing an MBA right now at the executive MBA program and we're doing an operations course. And so we think about operations and quality control in terms of say, imagine a graph of some metric, whether here it would be how good your shift is, but it, in an operations, it could be, you know, the ounces of something in a box or something. And you measure that over time. And you want to see that it stays pretty steady around some mean. 
You don't want it to be going down or up or having wild variations. And so I was thinking about this from an operations or a quality standpoint. If you think about your shifts, they are by definition going to average out around some mean quality of shift. By definition, half of your shifts will be below average, right? There's nothing you can do about that. So how can you make your shifts overall better? The only way to do that is to raise the mean. And then how can you also have less variability where some shifts are good, some shifts are bad? And I think about that as evening out the standard deviation. So most of your shifts will fall between some more narrow range. Now, certainly some are going to just be horrible. We've talked about when we have really terrible things that we witness. And some may be great. But most of the time, it's really up to us how our shifts go. And I started thinking about this because I found myself walking into a shift wondering, will this be a good shift or a bad shift? Almost like, you know, will the cafeteria have chicken or beef tonight? (laughs) Something that's totally out of my control. And I realized, wait a second, I'm thinking about this all wrong. I should choose how I'm going to make this a good shift, irrespective of what happens. And I thought about that quality control graph and how can I raise my mean and make there be less variation shift to shift. That's amazing. I, you know, it strikes me right away that this, of course, does not only apply to emergency medicine and shifts, but any sort of output that we have over time, right? I'm an extremely, extremely beginning surfer, and my ability to surf, my how good my session is out on the waves, um, certainly follows this rule too. So does my, mm, you know, mm-hmm. rolling in jujitsu practice, right? You you want to raise the mean for all of these things and to and to tighten the standard deviation around them. You know, the, the other thing that it makes me think of is in episode 24, I think we spoke to Kristen Holmes, who's the VP of human performance at Whoop and the former um, head coach of Princeton field hockey. And a lot of what she talked about is about the things that we do on our off days and how that sets us up for success on our on days. Because what this makes me question in my own mind is, okay, well, if my job is to raise the mean of my performance, what are the things I have to do ahead of time to do that? What are the things I have to do while I'm there to do that? And then what are the things I have to do afterwards to set myself up for more success the next day and to change the way I'm thinking about it? And there's these sort of three domains about it. Um, A lot of what we've been talking about so far in this conversation has been things that we would do on shift, little minute interventions we do to to steer the course of of what we're doing differently. how do you apply this when you think about like the day before a shift or the week before a shift or, or how are you setting yourself up to raise your mean even more next month than you are today? Yeah, great, great questions. I think going into it, more reminding myself to, hey, stay present, stay aware of your thoughts, don't get carried away by the stream or these waves of things that will happen. And just being prepared that, hey, things are going to happen. Frustrations are going to happen. If you go in expecting everything to work perfectly like a well-oiled machine, then you're setting yourself up for more frustration. So just expect that 50 to 75% of things are not going to work well. And I think that that goes a long way to helping us just frame how we expect our shifts to go. And then afterwards, reflecting on, okay, how well did I do? How well Was I able to manage my own mind or manage my own frustration or be present when I was talking to a patient and not be constantly thinking about everything else? And that allows you to course correct, to say, okay, this worked well, I need to work on this. And it's, of course, a constant 
ever, ever turning, you know, battle. But those are some of the things I would think about. And inherent in that is the idea that we need to build our own feedback loops around this, that mm -hmm. we have to be conscious of our goal, which is, you know, I want to, over the next X period of time, I want to raise the mean of my happiness. Is that, the, is that what we're describing? Or my, my um, success, my ability to flourish on shift, my, my performance. Your eudaimonia, if you will. Ah, nice. <laughs> I wanted to please define that. Uh, so that was the Greek term, and I apologize to my Greek friends if I did not pronounce it right, but <laughs> um, that the Stoics used, the Stoics used that meant perfect human flourishing. Hmm. That was kind of the goal. Yeah, which every time I've read that word and never heard it pronounced, I had a vastly different idea in my mind of what that word sounded like. Well, I think the anglicized okay. version is probably eudaimonia or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. But. Awesome. That makes way more sense now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, exactly. Like, like whatever it is that's the, that's the nonlinear sum of our ability to provide care and apply our craft and also how we are as a human as we're doing it, our ability to do it well, go home, live the next day and wake up the next morning. And I, I want to raise that number, whatever that number is over the next little bit. And, and that requires this feedback loop of saying, okay, I'm going to try this, almost some experimenting, right? I'm going to do this. Here's what I'm going to set up. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to evaluate it at the end, and then I'm going to go back and try to sort of do it again. Um, part of that is, I think, trying these things we're talking about, about letting go of thoughts that I don't need and visualizing myself as the boat, or excuse me, as the ocean and not the boat or not pouring gas on something, these little, <laughs> these little interventions yeah. in the middle. Um, what are you experimenting with right now in, in that logic? What's your oh, feedback yeah. look like? So I'm really experimenting with just radically self-forgiving. And one of the quotes that you had in your Stoicism article, actually, that was also great, and you should link to it, is one of the Seneca quotes, it's a little bit paraphrased, but do not trip over what is behind you. Mm -hmm. And when we have these moments of doing things that we think are stupid or not reacting well or getting angry or allowing ourselves to be frustrated, then how can we radically self-forgive? And there's actually good literature for this too. I mentioned that I work in the students and academic study space, and there are studies of students who procrastinated or didn't do well on a certain assignment, and then either they were able to self-forgive or didn't self-forgive, and those who self-forgave were then more able to study well and not procrastinate for the next assignment or next test. So when we carry around that guilt or self-flagellation that we beat ourselves up with our thoughts, thinking maybe oh, that'll make me work harder next time? It doesn't. It doesn't. And the literature bears this out too, that if you self-forgive, you're able to free yourself from that burden and then be more productive and be more successful next time. So now what I'm working on currently is every time I have one of those thoughts of, oh, that was stupid or, oh, you didn't do a good job on that, then I'll try to immediately self-forgive through these same series of questions of creating space between yourself and your thoughts, asking you know, is this even true? How, to, how does this thought make me feel? How do I feel without it? Um, and creating that practice of just radically self-forgiving. And it's been amazing. Hmm. And I think that's also what allows you to fail forward. You know, if you fail and you keep that failure in your hand, like a stick, and you beat yourself up with it, thinking, oh, this will remind me not to fail again. It actually doesn't. Whereas if you take that failure and you learn from it and you throw it away and put the stick down, 
then you can actually fail forward in a much more productive and healthy way. You know, we, we talk several times on the podcast about this concept of never waste suffering. Mm. The idea that you're not going to get rid of suffering, but that it's part of your responsibility to not waste that suffering. And, and usually we talk about it in the sense of don't leave lessons on the table. If you go through the suffering, make sure you learn something from it. But it strikes me that this is an equal way to, to interpret that idea that holding suffering and just hitting yourself with it over and over again and not moving forward through it, not forgiving yourself and growing from it is just as much of a waste of suffering as not learning anything from it in the first place. Um, so thank you for that. I really like that. I really like that idea about it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I know we talked about trying to avoid speaking to yourself out loud. I, I'm a little bit less <laughs> good at that than I think you are because I will often ask myself out loud in the middle of a shift, like, Dan, are you, are you tripping over something that's behind you right now? Mm, that's great. Especially as I leave a space and I'm watching myself get worked up and, you know, just to say out loud, hey, am I tripping over this thing that's behind me right now? Or am I actually doing something useful by continuing to think about it? Yeah. And I just love that image too of how could you possibly trip over what's behind you? Because it's behind you. And yet in our minds, it's not. In our minds, we walk back, we pick it up, and we throw it in front of our feet to trip over again and again. And so I love that image also. Leave those things behind you. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the percentages are, but I, I'd be willing to bet it's, it's really high that um, uh, let's call it 80, 90% plus or minus 10, that the number of times I ask myself that question, the answer is yes, I am <laughs> actually just tripping over something behind yes. me. I'm not actually producing any useful new investigation or any useful new thought, certainly not to me and certainly not to my patients by continuing to perseverate over that thing. No, exactly. Um, now that's of course very different than doing something after the fact and after action analysis, a hot debrief, a root cause analysis to go back and say, okay, what did happen here? What happened here and what can we do about it? And, and I think obviously neither of us are saying that that's a terrible thing to do. In fact, you have to do that. That's of part of your feedback loop to figuring out how to get better as a, to get better at your craft and to, to, um, to bring up the level of your eudaimonia or whatever that <laughs> word is that I can't really pronounce. Um, you know, you need those feedback loops in place. Um, what do those feedback loops look like for you? Do you have, do you keep journals of your shifts about what went well and what didn't? Do you, do you have a formal debrief process about them? I don't, and I probably would benefit from that, but I do occasionally when I'm very stuck on something, usually I can just work it out mentally, but if I'm really stuck on something, then I'll sit down and write, okay, what is the circumstance that's going on? What are my thoughts about that? What thoughts am I tripping up on? And how are that, those thoughts making me feel? And what actions am I then taking as a result of those feelings? And then thinking about, okay, how do I want to feel in this situation? Instead of angry, frustrated, helpless, I want to feel calm, competent, capable, optimistic. And what thoughts do I need to employ? I think about thoughts almost like weapons in a way, not, you know, in a bad way, but mm -hmm. so my kids like to play Zelda mm -hmm. and, you know, one of those video game things. And say you have some monster or some foe that you have to vanquish, you can go to your inventory and see, okay, what weapons do I need to pull out to, you know, vanquish this specific foe? And what armor do I need to, you know, withstand their hit points and stuff? I know, I know all about this stuff. I'm totally hip with the young kids. <laughs> this is great. Let's, let's do and, it. Yeah. And so thinking about, okay, what, what thought do I need to use in this situation? 
So when I'm feeling very overwhelmed with all the stuff I have to do and I have so much stuff to do all the time, then one of the thoughts that I will pull out as a weapon or a tool, think of it either way, is things like I can control what I spend my time on. I have full agency over my time. I am able to create time for things that are really important. Time is not my enemy. I get to choose how I spend my time. Isn't it great? All the things I get to spend my time on. So I have kind of an arsenal of weapons or tools that I can draw on for different situations to create new thoughts. And that creates the feelings that you need. So I love this idea of, of the sort of linear progression between a thought, a feeling, and then an action and the way that you're mapping out that path of movement between these things and figuring out where to intervene in that process. Um, it, there's this incredible quote from this guy, James Allen, who was a, an industrialist and a deep thinker and wrote the book, As a Man Thinketh. Um, hmm. He said, in the armory of thought, we build the weapons with which we destroy ourselves or the tools with which we build ourselves heavenly mansions of joy and strength and peace. And that idea of what am I doing, whatever I, if I don't do it consciously, I'm going to build these weapons that destroy myself because I'm going to produce something. The mind is very fertile. It's going to produce. It's going to continually produce. I'm going to hammer something and it's going to be a sword and I'm going to hit myself with it. Mm -hmm. Or I have the choice of saying, actually, no, I'd like to build this tool that I'm going to employ to build myself a mansion. Um, that image has stuck with me for a long time. Uh, so you said that you build up these arsenals of tools, of thoughts, of, of um, I'm trying to remember what the weapons are in Zelda. I think it's a sword and a boomerang <laughs> and, a, and a flute, if I'm remembering correctly. But, you know, it, probably there's a bow and arrow in there. Uh, as you build this up, what does that look like for you? Do, you? do you sit down and say, okay, I've had a lot of stress lately around um, the the line between what I control and what I don't control. So I'm going to sit down and journal and iterate and come up with a, a dozen things that I can say to myself in that moment. Or is this more of, Hey, I'm reading all of, I have this input list of my, my feedstock or whatever you call it is these books about philosophy and I'm going to pull things from them and sort them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both. I think sometimes it's thoughts that we can create, but other times it's thoughts that, great thinkers, philosophers, others have thought for us. And I love that quote about the armory, but, you know, I'll draw on stoic thoughts or thoughts about um, other images that other people have created. Actually, one that I really like from Voltaire is life is thickly sown with thorns and I know no other remedy than to pass quickly through them. The longer we dwell on our misfortunes, the greater is their power to harm us. And thinking about like, okay, I'm in the thorns and the more I try to fight the thorns, the more I'm going to get scratched up. So I need to pass quickly through the thorns. And so either creating images like that or like the boat or the gasoline and the fire, I'm very visual. I like those kind of images Mm -hmm. or using quotes, using quotes on myself that are from Stoic philosophy or from other philosophers or thinkers or things that I have that I can pull out from my own, my own armory. Hmm. And what's your, what's your hit list of, if you had to recommend two to three books for people to read to increase their, their feed stock, what's your, what's your, what should people go pick up? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, there's so many books specifically around Stoic philosophy. A good entry level one is the Donald Robertson, how to think like a Roman emperor. 
Um, that's a really good one. There's a couple others. I'm looking on my bookshelves, but they're at home, so I don't remember the names of them. And then, of course, there's the original Meditations by Aurelius and Seneca on the shortness of life. Which I'm <laughs> bro, also holding we're up. We're both yep, holding exactly. up different versions of the same book. That's awesome. Um, different. Yes. Yeah, so you can certainly go back to the original, no, original translated texts or some of these books that kind of put them together for you. Hmm. One of the, I mean, there's so many great books. Some of the others that are not specifically Stoic philosophy, but certainly draw from them. Things like mindset, grit. Um, those are some great books I think everyone should read. I like a lot of the books by Brene Brown on leadership and vulnerability in leadership. Dare to Lead is a good one. Daniel Coyle's Culture Code is a great one in terms of creating psychological safety for a group. We've talked almost about like psychological safety for ourselves, but then mm -hmm. how do you do that for your team? He has a lot of good thoughts on that. All right. Well, I want to be mindful of our time and I have a billion more questions and we're going to have to figure out like a round two, definitely. Um, but we always end with what your challenge is for folks listening to this. So medical or not medical, emergency doctors or not, what do you want people to come away from this and try differently tomorrow? Definitely applies to absolutely anyone. And this is my challenge to maintain ownership over the things that are in your control. Visualize that circle. What is inside that? Really own that. And then choose your thoughts intentionally. Choose what you are going to have going through your mind. And part of that is radically self-forgiving. And then think about how you can raise your own mean. Decide to measure the goodness of your shift or your day, not by those external circumstances, but by your attitude and how you face those circumstances. And, and then, and only then, will you be able to create good shifts and not just hope for them. Awesome. Christina, thank you so much. This is super useful. I, I can't wait to apply a lot of this stuff uh, in my own life over the next little bit. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. It was great to talk to you. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at the Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.